I'm Chuck Smeaton from the Royal Institution of Australia, and this is the Cosmos Podcast. I'd like to begin by acknowledging the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, traditional owners of the land where I speak to you from today, and pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging. Today, we are talking about the academic scientific peer review process, which ordinarily involves a journal sending out a submitted paper to other experts for assessment before they decide to publish the article, something which has become part of the normal process for and sign of a quality academic scientific journal. This subject is increasingly important as more and more high-profile and impactful research articles are being retracted or placed under editorial notices of concern, both in Australia and overseas. To learn more, Cosmos journalist Claire Kenyon talks to Dr Ivan Aransky, an acclaimed journalist and one of the creators of Retraction Watch, a site and database which collates, lists and discusses retractions and editorial notes of concern placed on peer-reviewed journal article publications. And also Dr Elizabeth Bick, a Dutch-US microbiologist and image consultant especially renowned for her ability to detect image duplication and manipulation. Thank you for both being here with me today. Ivan, you co-founded the Retraction Watch database, which now lists over 36,000 retracted journal articles. We've just seen the news hit of Paul McCrory, uh, in Australia particularly. Can you tell me, is peer review failing? Uh, I think it's clear that peer review is failing in a lot of cases. Uh, You know, is peer review overall failing? That depends how you define it, when you think it begins and ends. Uh, I don't mean to be sort of very vague and and almost philosophical, but there's actually a lot of that. Um, I think that what we've all learned is that peer review does not do all of the things that editors and publishers and frankly, scientists and universities at least implied that it did if didn't if they didn't even come out and say that it did and that includes not catching plagiarism which is what happened and self what's known as self plagiarism which is duplicating your own work which those are the things that happened in the Paul McCrory case that you referred to in terms of concussion research and uh, other sports medicine issues uh it doesn't catch uh, image manipulation and duplication which we're going to hear about I'm sure from uh from Dr Bick and it just doesn't catch bad science often, which is badly done, even if it's not fraudulent. So I think that the question of whether or not peer review is failing depends on what we think peer review is supposed to do, uh, what we're told it does, uh, and what our expectations are for it. Um, but it's very clear that in far too many cases that are not being corrected in the literature, uh, peer review did in fact fail. Yeah, absolutely. Fantastic. Um, So, Elizabeth, as a sleuth and image manipulation expert detector, you are a little bit more generous, I think, when you talk about peer review failing. Well, I think peer review is not really designed to find fraud. And uh, I think a lot of people don't look at images the way I do. I'm like super specialized. So when I look at a paper, I specifically look at the images. I don't read the rest. So I focus on a very particular part of a paper that other people might not look at. So I do post a lot of uh, the problems I'm finding on Twitter. So I hope uh, secretly to educate a lot of people on how to look at images, because I do think once 
you point out the types of errors that one could find in an image, such as duplication or manipulation, where parts of an image have been duplicated within the same photo. Once you are aware that this could be a thing, you, you might actually see it. Uh, but most people don't pay attention to it. And so it's not caught during peer review. Uh, absolutely. Okay. So actually it sounds a bit like you guys are saying the same sort of thing. There are instances where it's definitely failing and perhaps when they're not. Um, I'll stick with you just for a second, Elizabeth, because you do deal with looking for image manipulations and, and finding things that are not quite right. Why do you think people, in your opinion, circumvent this peer review process? Why are they doing these sorts of things? Because it's very rewarding to do fraud in science and it's uh, there's very little punishment. So I think a lot of people will feel the pressure to publish. Most scientists will feel that. And it's much easier to publish positive results than negative results. So if your experiment doesn't turn out the way you had hoped, it's very tempting to use digital uh, techniques to enhance a photo or to uh, to take an old photo that you've used previously and and make it look like it's a new experiment. I think the, the temptations, especially with digital photography, are really large and, um, and the rewards are, are great because now you can publish a, a beautiful paper. Uh, while, yeah, it's very hard to publish negative results. And Ivan, would you think this is in sort of the same, same thing for Attraction Watch? You would have seen a lot of other types of problems crop up, reasons for papers to be retracted. Is this sort of your experience as well? Yeah, very much so. Uh, the phrase is always publish or perish. And I think that it's alive and well. Uh, if you don't publish papers, then you don't uh, get promoted. You don't get tenure. You don't get grants. Um, and it's, so it's a very direct line. There are even cases where, if you will, there's publish or perish on steroids, which is to say people get cash bonuses or they're expected to publish papers when they really are not qualified to do that. And I don't mean that unkindly. I mean, everyone is qualified to do certain things. But uh, if you are a, in other words, a clinical faculty member at a medical school, a medical center, uh, you know, you're expected to treat patients, uh, maybe to maybe do a little bit of research with others. But really, your expectation is you teach medical students and residents, you, uh, again, treat patients and um, do things like that. You're not really trained to do research and certainly not to do it well. And yet as a condition in China until quite recently, although we still have to see whether or not uh, the sort of government um, ban on these kinds of incentives that I'm about to describe is going to stick, you had to publish two papers if you were a clinical faculty member in order to get promoted. And so of course you're going to try and do that. I mean, I, everybody has incentives and we like to think that we will resist them, that we will somehow overcome and do the right thing. And, you know, hopefully lots of us do, but it's very easy to understand how this happens. And until we do something about that, it's very difficult for me to see how we're going to have the kind of change we want in terms of promoting good science, promoting good research practices. And by the way, good science doesn't mean blockbuster results all the time and positive results and what have you. It it means doing science that is reliable, that is repeatable, and it's the sort of term for that is reproducible or replicable. They can be replicated. That's good science. Um, and that's what we need to promote. Yeah, absolutely. So it sounds like, I mean, I said before that there were 36,000 retracted papers. 
how how widespread is this problem, you know, and, and what proportion do you think are missed? How many do you think are still out there, you know, per published paper, do you think? Yeah, it's a great question. So there are about 36,000 attractions in the Attraction Watch databases, as you mentioned, Claire. There, And that is a rate right now of roughly 8 in 10,000 papers published. So uh, less than 1%, in fact, below 0.1%. So it's still, you know, you could say it's a fairly rare event. If that was the number of people who had a, you know, percentage of people who had a particular cancer or something like that, you'd describe it as a pretty rare event. Um, But it's become very clear to us over the 12 years that we've been doing Retraction Watch that there are many more cases of papers that should be retracted that aren't being retracted. And um, I'm comfortable saying now, and I, I hadn't been until somewhat recently, that I think that probably at least, and I, I emphasize at least, 2% of all papers should meet, I should say, meet criteria, standard criteria for retraction. So that would be mm-hmm. one in 50 as opposed to, you know, eight in 10,000, obviously a much bigger number. And I base the, that idea, I, I, the evidence that I uh, sort of draw that conclusion on, you know, based on, is uh, in significant part the work of Dr. Bick, who found uh, about two percent and of sort of inappropriate, you know, uh, intentional uh, looking uh, image duplication in a paper way back in 2015, 2016, where she looked at 20,000 different papers and and just you know really impressive work. And oh. if you look at there are some other lines of evidence too that suggest there are lots of papers that are people are raising significant, serious, credible concerns about, and that journals and publishers are doing nothing about. So I think it should be at least 2%. Other people have said to me, oh, that's even too low. Yeah, wow. That's incredible. You kind of lead me to my next question, actually, and that is that, so obviously there are these papers on Attraction Watch and, and you know, you've co-founded that site and you write blogs quite regularly. Where, where do you think your work sort of sits in relation to this peer review role in maintaining scientific integrity, which sort of sounds like it's a bit at risk at the moment? Well, we, I will say, first of all, that we always leave it to others to sort of judge where our work sits and, and whether or not we've had an impact. But I think that what we're trying to do is look at the process of self-correction in science. And so, in fact, often our stories begin at the point of retraction. Now we try and find out what actually happened. Uh, how long did that take? Uh, we file public records requests to find out that kind of information. But we're really very laser focused on how often does science, you know, not work right the way we'd like, or peer review not work the way we'd like, and how often is that corrected? And so, you know, we have seen a lot of changes over the period that we've been doing retraction watch. The rate of retractions has grown actually significantly. So in 2000, there were about 400 retractions from uh, journals. That was the year we launched. We actually thought it was much lower. So we we got something wrong from day one. Uh, And then last year, there were nearly 10 times as many. There were about 3,800 retractions. Now, the number of papers has gone up. I could sort of give lots of context. I should give lots of context, but in the interest of time, that is still, even if you account for all those changes, a remarkable rise uh, in the rate of retraction. So that's happened. And also a lot of retraction notices. In other words, what the, what tells us why something is retracted, and this is not universal, but a lot of them are in fact much more detailed and actually provide information that is useful to the scientific community. And that is really, that was sort of at least reason, you know, high uh, number two for why we launched Retraction Watch. The first one was just because there were all these stories that weren't being told. And as journalists, that's catnip for us. 
<laughs> oh, I know. <laughs> um, Elizabeth, you obviously uh, are part of this scientific integrity process as well. Where where do you sort of sit? Where do you sit with Retraction Watch? Where do you sit with peer review <laughs> and scientific integrity? <laughs> so I'm situated sort of uh, in time uh, before Retraction Watch because I work on finding papers that have potential problems and in the hope that they either get corrected or retracted. So when they're retracted, they might end up in Retraction Watch. Uh, they will end up there. But unfortunately, as uh, Ivan already uh, alluded to, it's it's very often that there are serious problems in a paper that are visible for me by just looking at the images that are not retracted mm-hmm. and or not even corrected. And so um, I actually think that the real percentage of papers that should be retracted is is higher than 2% because I only look at images. I look at visible problems and there's many more ways that one could fraud, do fraud in a paper. Like Mm. one could just type in some numbers and make a beautiful graph that did not happen. But those are much harder to catch by just looking at the paper. You would really need to sit next to the researcher, see what they're doing, what they're writing down in their lab books. Uh, and then compare that to the published paper. So I think a lot of these fraud cases might not be catchable ever and uh, and go undetected. Wow. I think you wrote a paper a little while ago about the number of potential image manipulations in the percentage, right. didn't you? Yeah, that that's what uh, Ivan was uh, yeah. alluding to. So it's, it's about, so we found one in um, 25 papers, so 8%. Uh, sorry, 4% of papers to uh, to contain duplicated images. Now, mm. some of these are potentially just just errors where mm. somebody just in- included the wrong uh, image. But there are cases where, for example, an image is reused, but it's it's being flipped. That looks like it wasn't done intentional or rotated or it's like overlapping or even has manipulated or duplicated parts within the same photo. And those are much more likely to have been done intentionally. So... We that that estimate of two percent of papers should be retracted. That is from from my paper, and that is mm-hmm. uh, refers to yeah one in fifty papers that contain images that look like they have been intentionally duplicated or manipulated. And Claire, if I could just uh, just sort of pick up on something that uh, Dr. Victor said about you know being specialized earlier and looking you know at images. Um, uh, I, I think if I may, Elizabeth, here you're. you're you know, you're doing yourself a little bit disservice. You've actually looked at some other things too, to, to, to sure. great effect. But I take your point and actually want to sort of say that, you know, we have a, a page full of sleuths on Retraction Watch and it's not comprehensive. We don't claim it is, but there are easily a few dozen, I think maybe three dozen now names on there of people who are doing the kind of work that Dr. Big does. But in fact, uh, everybody sort of speciates. It's 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 like mm-hmm. Darwin's finches, right? So uh, <laughs> you know, you're looking at image manipulation and duplication. Others are looking at plagiarism. Others are looking at when data are faked. In other words, the likelihood that given data exist uh, is is sort of or uh, you know that they are real, that they sort of mm-hmm. exist in nature uh, and were really observed, uh, and how how big or small that is, and and based on that, should this paper be investigated? Um, we have you know people who um, 
they call themselves uh, data thugs and um, sort of in that, uh, you know, there's maybe an, a sort of apologies for a sort of U.S. reference, but sort of the, the you know, organized crime, the mafia, there's a sort of, that, you know, that's a really nice data set you have that it'd be a shame if anything happened to it. Oh. Kind of data. And what they're doing, though, is, is very, uh, is absolutely non-criminal, the opposite of criminal behavior. They're looking at the statistics and seeing whether or not there's something that doesn't make sense. Um, they have these elaborate, some of them are very simple tools, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so they're, it, it's terrific. It's wonderful. Uh, the the downs, the, the bad news is that the vast majority of these people, um, this is not their job. In other words, either they're literally volunteers, which many of them are, or, you know, there may be a few of them, several of them are actually, you know, professors and sort of they're, they're getting paid for something that's related to, you know, what mm-hmm. they do. But if they stop doing this, actually, it wouldn't have any effect on their careers. In fact, it might boost their careers because nobody likes to hear about it. And so the, the bad news really is that these are people who are putting in countless hours uh, and and using their expertise and doing incredibly hard work for, for nothing. Um, and while certain publishers and others reap, you know, billion dollar, multi-billion dollar profits. And that doesn't make, I mean, it makes sense to me in the sense of I see it happening and I know why these things happen, but it really defies any logic. And, you know, honestly, uh, Adam and I are also volunteers at Attraction Watch. We've been doing this. Mm-hmm. Um, there were a few years we were able to pay ourselves a little bit because we had some very generous grant funding, but the vast majority of the time we've been volunteers. It's a privilege. It's a wonderful thing to be able to do, but the the system does not reward this kind of sleuthing in the way that it really should. And you would, you would obviously, you're nodding along, Elizabeth. I would (laughs) suggest that you probably agree. I do agree. I mean, I'm uh, sort of funded financially by uh, people who donate money to me. So I'm a a patron and people give small amounts of money to support my work. But um, so you could argue I'm not like a volunteer, but but it does feel like like I don't get mm. a salary. In fact, I get a lot of harassment on Twitter. I have uh, been threatened with lawsuits twice. Yeah. So it's it's definitely not rewarding in that sense. Um, and it's, uh, you know, sometimes I think this work could financially ruin me because I might be right in raising concerns. But if somebody decides and somebody with a lot of money and a lot of um, power behind them, if somebody decides to sue me, I need to defend myself and that could financially ruin me. But I do think it's still a fight that I need to fight, uh, something I need to do because somebody needs to do it. And I'm in a position where I can do it because I'm sort of later in my career. I uh, am financially supported by by sponsors. And uh, yeah, so I feel I'm in the right place to raise these concerns. Wow. Um, both of you, I would say, I mean, you're in the right place, right time, but also, yeah. I mean, it sounds, it must feel a lot like sometimes Sisyphus pushing, pushing a, um, a boulder up a hill. <laughs> um, <laughs> it does feel like that sometimes, yes. You're or Hercules some... in the stables, honestly. <laughs> if, we're, if we're going with Greek, if we're going with Greek tragedy, yeah. We could, you know. we could pick a number of them, I think. Um, I think it'd resonate with several of them. Uh, when I was talking, you've actually alluded to this already, when I was talking to a number of researchers and other stakeholders about peer review, it struck me that the issues we face with academic integrity um, all ultimately all boil down to people. It's all about people. Uh, one person I spoke to, Professor Adrian Barnett from the Queensland University of Technology, 
He's actually working on using automated systems, so not people, to address some of the aspects of journal submission and publication. That's one side of it. What do we need to be doing in the future? What do we do with peer review? Well, I, I'm sort of a believer that peer review should be rewarded in some way, um, like either financially or in terms of um, publishing credits or so, because we uh, we peer review the, the papers for free and we even write them for free and the publishers make a lot of profits. And I'm not quite sure where that, where that money goes to, to be honest, um, because publishing nowadays is all online. It's just basically putting a PDF on a server and that doesn't seem to cost a lot of money. So I'm not quite sure why we should pay publishers up to $10,000 to get a paper published uh, right. under the open access model. So so that's one thing. I, I And I feel that peer reviewers have very limit, limited time because they're people with a full-time job, they're yes. professors or they're postdocs, they all have busy lives. And peer review for them is sort of what they might do on a Friday night or a Saturday morning, um, you know, where they could be having fun with their families, but instead they, they feel this obligation to do peer review, but but they, they're limited in time. So I feel that peer review or part of peer review should be done by paid volunteer, a paid specialist, um, because papers are getting so complicated. You need a statistical expert to look at it. You need a, uh, a person who can look at images to look at it. You might mm-hmm. need people looking at um, ethical permits and, and all kinds of things. So there's so many aspects to a paper. We need specialists to look at these at these uh, things and they need to be paid, in my opinion, by the publishers. Yeah. And, and Ivan, you'd obviously agree with that. I, I would certainly agree with that. Uh, I would also say a couple of things about ways to improve peer review. And one is transparency. I uh, We have long said um, that it would be great if, and in fact, we've begun, we've begun to maybe say better than it'd be great. It's sort of necessary at this point to publish the peer reviews. Now, uh, some journals actually do that. There's a, at least one large publisher that that's routine, a couple large publishers that's routine. Um, and I don't mean, by the way, outing the peer reviewers. I, I understand the need for anonymity and the vulnerability that someone might have when they're making critical comments. You heard, you know, Elizabeth talk about harassment and and yeah. lawsuit threats and other awful things. The that will happen if you uh, make any critical comment and if you sign, even if it, it's a peer review and that we were asked to do it. So that, but publishing the peer review, I mean, for one thing, it would get rid of this entire industry of what are known somewhat inelegantly and maybe even inaccurately as predatory publishers. If if you know that a peer review didn't actually happen, then you why would you trust that any more than anything else? Now, the other thing I would say is, I think we have to sort of think much more holistically or or sort of throughout the life cycle, if you will, which is really a circle uh, in terms of research and not just think about peer review at the time that a paper is published, because it gives this a sort of false binary of, you know, this is legitimate. This is, you know, good, has a good housekeeping seal of approval, as we'd say in the States. Uh, that's really not what that the peer review can't do that. Uh, sometimes it's sold that way, but it really can't do that. You know, let's think about sort of a, an ongoing uh, peer review that is out in the open, uh, whether it happens in what are known as preprints or right? preprint servers, right? So these are papers that have not been peer reviewed and it says so right on top of them. Uh, may then people comment on them and may offer some comments that actually make it, make the paper better, make the manuscript better for when it's published. And just think about things as a continuous 
effort to improve the, the work and improve the methodology, uh, improve our understanding and the conclusions, uh, that would be really helpful. Instead of thinking about peer review only happening at the time, you know, a manuscript is submitted to a journal. Yeah. Absolutely. Some really good ideas in there. And I think uh, you've highlighted some really good things about that. Would you agree that also maybe uh, there's a lot of push to get real, like to get the, all the data, the real images, the, the pure images, the, the full sets of data? Would you sort of think that that's part of that transparency process maybe? I definitely agree. Uh, it doesn't fully prevent uh, frauding. I've seen so-called original images uh, that already had been photoshopped, but um, I fully agree that um, that open science, so the the openness of all data that underlies a paper, is a a, a big hurdle to to do fraud because it just you know makes it harder to to do fraud. It's not going to fully prevent it, but it will definitely be a big step. And in many cases, you just look at the data and. You just question, is the data real or not? And the authors are not willing to hand over the original data, but they should, especially when the paper is just, you know, months old. They should still have that. Yeah, absolutely. Ivan Aransky, Elizabeth Beek, uh, it has been an absolute pleasure. And thank you so much for giving your time to Cosmos. Thank you, Claire. Pleasure to be here. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this episode. Remember that you can head to cosmosmagazine.com via the link in the description for more great content. You can also subscribe to Cosmos Magazine, Australia's only science print magazine, and Cosmos Weekly with its unique approach to how science, news and the economy intersect. Podcast listeners can get both products at a special price using the coupon code which you will also find in the description. Of course, you can watch and listen to all our Cosmos podcasts via the link in the description too. And remember, if you support science and its communication, please support our work at the Royal Institution of Australia. I'm Chuck Smeaton, and today's interview was conducted by Claire Kenyon. Thank you 